Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrobeth, a podcast exploring the apocryphal apocalypses of Tolkien's Legendarium. Oh, good, alli- uh, good alliteration. Whoa. Thank you. I got I'd so like excited. to point out that I got that on the first try. Wow. <laughs> which right. is, I'm pretty proud of. I would not have I'm called proud. that. <laughs> I'm proud of you, too. <laughs> well, hello. Hello to you, Jude. Hello. hello. How are you? I'm gr- I'm actually all right. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, good. I you? am getting over a cold, which is fine. But uh, but that's that's the situation. So, you know. Yeah. I, I've, I just take illness for granted this time of year. I think <laughs> my son has had like three or four fevers in the last six weeks. Oh, like, no. It's just, well, I mean, he's in kindergarten and oh, it's no. a new school and everybody's been gone for like two years because of coronavirus. So it's just oh. like, it's yeah. just nobody's immune system is prepared and <laughs> all the diseases are in overdrive. So it's just constant waves of, of sick, but he's a trooper. Oh, so he's a good boy. What a sweetie. Yep. Oh goodness. Well, I hope he heals up soon. Um, I, I don't I mean, know. I feel like everybody is sick right now with something. So yeah. Well, I mean, um, I think that, I think that situation goes for like the entire human populace right now. <laughs> It's just worse for a kindergartner because that's yeah. like what it is like for them in the winter anyway. It's just times extra because of coronavirus. You're so. absolutely, that's absolutely right. Oh, well, everybody, you know, stay safe, wear a mask if you want to and uh, wash your goddamn know, hands. Get some rest. Everybody get some rest. All right. Everybody yep. clear your schedule. Put the phone down and take a nap, I think. Don't you think that yes. would be nice? 100%. Everybody get some more sleep. That's your homework for this month. Whatever month we're in. What month are we in? March? I don't know. This will be out yeah. in March. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Happy March. I don't know. What's in March? Nothing. I don't think we have a ton of announcements or anything before we get into the episode, but I do want to say, uh, as a small reminder, that Athrobeth will be at Oxenmoot this year. Woo! Uh, so if you will be at Oxenmoot, and you want to hang out, we want to hang out. Yeah, we really want to hang out with you. <laughs> we want to like... We do. See all the talks and everything, but we are just as excited uh, to put faces to all you lovely people out in the, the Tolkien-verse. Yep. Um, so do not hesitate to reach out and say hi when you're there, or if you want to set something up in advance, please reach out, because uh, we are super excited to be going... And uh, we're looking to make it the, the best trip we can make it. Yeah. And I don't want to accidentally get shy like I do sometimes and then get too shy to talk to people. So, uh, yeah, you should come talk to us. I'm going to have stickers and um, badges. Yeah. And I've got Jude. He doesn't know this yet, but a matching tote bag to me. So we're going to be <laughs> having matching tote bags. <laughs> Steph loves merch. So I love merch. I love it. Yeah. Just wait. I'm thinking about making an Oxen Mood exclusive sticker that's sparkly, but I haven't decided yet. I kind of want to though. <gasps> I have what? every I yeah. have no doubt whatsoever that you will create some kind of Oxen Mood specific merch. That is definitely <laughs> a thing that you would do. I'm so much ox, very moot. I'm very excited. Okay. Well, let's get into the episode as we have Oh. Mm? Can I just one really quickly Please. before we start? I just want to say hi to our wonderful discord users and thank you so much for using it and like coming on and sharing your awesome the things that you're reading and um and your awesome opinions about stuff you're also smart and wonderful and yeah cool, we've had some, and i just some great yeah. chat on there lately uh, it's been a oh, lot of fun it's been awesome yes and i just really appreciate you all so thank you i'm even if i don't respond sometimes i'm at work or whatever i am reading it and i just think you're all clever as fuck so yeah thank you nice. so much yeah. keep coming yeah thank you so much that's well, all. okay, got, now we can go okay. to your episode. Nice. Yes. Well, we've got many broken paths to tread, so let's begin. All right. So, I considered a number of silly titles for this episode. Uh, I haven't picked one yet, though. So mm-hmm. the general topic, however, is Arda healed Ooh. and Arda marred. Ooh. So what we're, what we're generally going to be talking about, though, is Arda healed. Arda marred is a necessary sort of precondition to be talking about Arda healed. So we're going to start talking about what Arda marred is. Mm-hmm. 
And then we're going to talk about some of the things that come up when we talk about Arda Healed and what that means and what's involved in that and the, the evolution of that concept. Are you talking about beloved MASH actor Alan Arda? <laughs> what is this Arda you speak of? Jude's giving me a look. Uh, I know it's. Alba, I will define not- some terms at the top. Okay. Yay! For those of you that inexplicably confuse West Wing actor Alan Alda with all of, cre- all of creation Arda. He is beloved. They both are beloved either way. Yes. Uh, so Arda Mard is the concept of Arda, that is creation, uh-huh. in which there is Umbar, our world, and then Middle Earth, which is the continent and the place in which all our tales take place. And then it goes through a number of different states, which you'll hear us talk about. There's Arda Unmarred, and then Arda Marred, and Arda Healed, and all these things. And so we're going to talk about a couple of these different states to start with. Okay. So let's talk about the first of those states, Arda Unmarred. Okay, so creation perfection. This is the state of Arda as it was conceived of in the first music. So if you recall your Aina Lindele, Iluvatar sits down and composes this music, metaphorically speaking, and sets out to, to produce it with his... Ainur. And they so begin yeah. to produce this world. What they are composing there is Arda Unmarred. But then Morgoth gets a bug up his ass and starts to introduce dissonance into the music. It is that point at which we get Arda Mard. And the reason why we go all the way back to this point to talk about this is because I want to emphasize the primordialness of Arda Mard. It is in the world from its earliest point, even though it will not affect everything at equal times and equal amounts, the marring is in the music from the first. It was not conceived in the music, but Melkor introduces it in the initial music. Mm. Wow. It's not like they go down into the world and everything's perfect and then Morgoth fucks it up. He fucks up the music. It's a part of the plan for the world. Right. So then the Ainur go down into the world to actually make that music happen. Mm-hmm. And when they first the get down- show. The, the live, live show. The live show. Yeah. <laughs> and this is one of the ways in which the Ainulindala is an interesting, we talked about this in our free will episode, but there's, this is one of the ways in which the Ainulindala is, is, in, is an interesting examination of predestination and free will and so forth, because it's not clear to what degree the music demands things follow its form or in which, like, is the marring there from the moment they arrive or does the Mm. marring occur because of the things Morgoth does because he put the, because of the plan that the music made for it or has he already planned to do it? So then he's going to do it, but until he does it, it's not done. Hmm. It's not clear. But I hurt my brain. Let me rephrase I, it then. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, sure. The reason why we care is because we have this idea of Arda unmarred, of there being a time when Arda was in the conception, existed in the way in which it was intended, mm-hmm. the spring of the world, as sure. it is referred to. And we know, for a fa- we know that there is a, way, a, a time in which that existed. And it's not... It, it is, in fact, a time after the world ends up. It, it isn't the way the world was initially planned. Right. So there is okay. some debate, not debate, but there is, there is some sort of gray area there as to what Arda Unmarred is. If it's anything, if it, it could ever exist. Because you're saying yeah. the music predates Arda. So there is no such thing as Arda Unmarred then. Yeah. Not, not into, well, like I said, it depends on the degree to which the music is predestination versus plan. Mm. If anyone is having trouble following anything, I will refer you back to episode six of Athrobeth, which I know was a million years ago. It's from January 2nd, 2019. And it's Woof. called Froa and Fea, where Jude goes over this, like, I think... Um, the first time we talked about this and does these terms and stuff. So uh, 
We also have yeah. a, a whole episode specifically on free will. I don't recall which episode number that is, but yeah, um, I don't know either. Editor's note: the episode is number thirty-two, "Fate and Free Will," from March third, twenty twenty-one. Okay, that's interesting, though. Hmm. So, what what camp do you fall in then? That there was an Arda unmarred. Yes, I do believe there was an Arda unmarred, but I think that I personally believe. So, this goes into slightly more more aggressive theology, but I think that the marring is not a case of, I think the music is more of a plan Mm -hmm. than a predestination. Okay. And that Morgoth has, Morgoth's contamination of Middle-earth is an act, not a, it it isn't that he, he, it is not his, he has to invest himself into Middle-earth in order for that marring to really take hold. So his meddling in the music is him signaling his intention to do that, but it hasn't actually been done. So, for example, when he brings down the first sources of light in Middle-earth, when he, when he brings down the lamps, that's a dick move, but he hasn't really <laughs> marred the world in the way in which he will. And that is after he destroys the two trees. And he flees into Middle-earth, and he tries to take Mm Middle-earth. And then he sinks an enormous amount of his own self into Middle-earth. And that's where we get the name of one of the history's uh, volumes, Morgoth's Ring. Middle-earth is Morgoth's ring in the way that Sauron makes his own ring. Oh, interesting. He puts his power into Middle-earth. That's why he never is able to shapeshift after he gets into Middle-earth. Sure, because he has sunk so much of his own personal power into the world mm-hmm. he's locked into that one shape by the time that for example he takes the silmarils from baron and he's wearing it on his crown right. that's all he's got he's enormously powerful still but he's locked he's invested all that power in marring the world to try and make it fit the way he wants it to be yeah that so qu- there's a quote from the fragments of elvish reincarnation he became more and more incapable, like Ungaliant, of extracting himself and finding escape from the vastness of Ea and became more and more physically involved in it. So, yeah, exactly what you just said. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Man, so so imagine, though, imagine you're a being that can change shape to whatever you want, right? So, like, maybe today you're putting on a shape that you're not, like, that into because you're like, it's fine, I'll just change tomorrow. And then all of a sudden one day you can't change anymore and you're stuck with a weird hat or something that you didn't think you we're going to want to wear forever. Man, yeah. that sucks. Mm-hmm. I, well, don't be, don't be a dick then. There you go. Yeah. Sheesh. <laughs> so this is what, so when we talk about Arda unmarred, mm-hmm. what we, ta- what we're t- talking about in general is Arda before the destruction of the two trees. And generally speaking, that is referring to Valinor, not exclusively, but often when they talk about Arda unmarred, they are referring to that those things where the light of the two trees touched. That makes sense. Not not exclusively, but in general, often the elves, when they refer to Arda unmarred, that's what they're talking about. Okay. So we've set that term up. Now sure. and we start now and we started talking about Arda Marred. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the marring and what what be what the what Arda Marred means. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've talked about the music and Morgoth getting his discord on in the music, but it has some very concrete consequences for the world, aside from things being grosser, like things die and all that stuff. It has some very concrete consequences. Mm-hmm. Specifically, there's three categories I want to go through and talk about. Uh, the first is amongst the children. Elves and men. And then uh, there's a really interesting passage in that same fragment you mentioned, the fragment of on the fragments of Elvish resurrection that talks about how the Marine impacted Amon uh, that we'll get to. So first, elves, because I think that is the most straightforward. Sure. Yeah. In a backwards kind of way. Okay. So with the elves, the, the elves were never meant to die. Right. That's the okay. first thing. They are meant to be co-eternal with Middle-earth. Okay. And yep. we talk about, we've talked about this a lot of times before. 
but we'll do a sort of a, a review here. Yeah. They are meant to live as long as Middle Earth exists. The elves were meant to to exist with it. Okay. And that the marring breaks that. Not only okay. does he int- does it introduce the idea of elves dying, their Hroa and Fea meaning their bodies and souls become separated. So Hroa is body and yeah. Fea is souls. Yeah. Gotcha. That separation is inimical to their intended existence. They were okay. never meant to be separated, their bodies and souls. Right, because we do learn that a soul unhoused will become mournful and sad and yeah. angry and stuff, And I think right? that's, that's, I think, an important point to emphasize is that it literally was never, des- they were never designed to function that way. Okay. The whole idea of, like, what to do with an elf soul once its body is destroyed is something that... Like, the Valar had no fucking clue what to do with them. Sure. They had to, like, have, a, have like, a meeting. <laughs> and, like, they have a council of the, of, of the Valar. And yeah. then Manway goes up to his mountain and, and prays, not prays, and, like, communes with Iluvatar. And then comes down with, like, an answer that nobody likes, but is the <laughs> least un- uncomfortable solution that they can come up with. Right, because they're also timeless beings that don't, die either so they have no there's just no concept for this yeah in their, well, and, in their little brains yeah. yeah oh and it's and the thing about the the Adenor and the valar by extension is their conception of middle earth is derived entirely from the music okay so when something happens that is outside of the music mm-hmm. they're straight bum fuzzled <laughs> This is a problem that we see throughout Middle-earth. And this is another episode that I kind of have on the, on the burner right now is like the evolution of the Valar and how they change and grow over time. And one of the chief problems with the Valar is very few of them are capable of like wrapping their heads around changing circumstance very well. Yeah, they're not that flexible. No, because they are designed to improvise on the music. And then execute that music. They were never designed to like problem solve outside the lines. Because it wasn't, that wasn't their role. That was Eru's role, right? As the Mm. main creator. And that would have been stepping on his toes if they tried to do that. I'm looking at you, Outlay. Yeah. And something, doing something from nothing. The only one of them who really had that capability was Morgoth. Right. And he went fucking pear shaped and off the rails. So my point is that the elves dying was a real fucking head scratcher for the Valar. They didn't know what to do with them. Sure. They had sure. to like invent the halls of Manway and then fucking <laughs> like Mandos. come up with this whole terrible pl- or Mandos and come up with this whole terrible plan. And then rebirth comes along and they're like the whole concept of rebirth happens because some of these elves, these elves are just, it sucks. They just hate not having a body because it's right. just not what they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That and, first in that, sorry, if you don't mind me yeah, please. interrupting, in the fragments of Elvish reincarnation that we keep talking about, which I hope you'll actually, uh, yeah, like explain me, a little bit more. Yeah, do you want to explain it before? Yeah, so I, yeah. we keep talking about it. Let me, yeah, reference it. Um, sorry, <laughs> the fragments on Elvis Re- resurrection is a from a work called it's a French it's a French compilation of fragments. It's called. I don't speak French, so pardon my uh, pronunciation. La Fuile de la Campagne, Volume 3, J.R. Tolkien, La Effigie des Elfes. It is a, it is the full versions of several manuscripts of The Converse of Man- Manway and Eru, Reincarnation of Elves, and some notes on Rebirth, Reincarnation by Restoration among the Elves. They are summarized in Morgoth's Ring, as well as a few other places, uh, including Peoples of Middle-earth, but they were given to these French translators or these French Tolkien academics who mm-hmm. published them with full commentary. And then they were translated from French into English with the help of Karl Hofstetter or Karl Hofstetter and then published. Uh, so there's a French, it's French and English side by side okay. for these fragments. So um, I secured a copy of this book because Elven Resurrection is my my jam. Mm-hmm. It's a f- 
these fragments are fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff in this volume. Um, I, I was actually, frankly, surprised that they were not included in more depth in Morgoth's Ring. But yeah, absolutely. Well, the very first one, the converse of Manway and Eru, is what I was going to mention. It's basically it's pretty short, and it's like a conversation between Manway and Eru, where Manway's like, uh, "Boss, um, the elves are kind of like dying a lot, man. We gotta we gotta do something about. It. What, what do you want to do about this?" And and Eru's like. Um, I don't know. You can remake them or have them rebirth. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. And Manway's like, no, I don't want to do that. We can't do that. That's your thing, right? And it's just this kind of interesting conversation where it was like, no, no, you can like basically laying out like how this can happen in this short little like exchange. But I feel like it sort of blows Manway's mind because Manway has always been like, don't step on Eru's toes, right? We saw what happens when you do that. And it was like, no, go for it. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but no, that but was the vibe I the got vibe from that. The vibe very much is, this is your domain, so you need to make provisions for this. And Manway is just like, no, no, the children <laughs> are not my domain. Yeah. I, I do not want to make provisions for this. And there was like, sorry, Chuckles, but they're in, <laughs> you're the king of Arda. So you got you to gotta, you gotta make a decision here. Yes, I think that's a very accurate summary. Um <laughs> And lastly, with the elves, they fade. Right. Talk to me about that. So it's a two-part thing. The first is that their function is to preserve, to, mm. to remember and to caretake and to, and to preserve, but their bodies can't withstand that function because the spirit is, is, is not marred. Morgoth's right. tampering didn't get in there, but it did get into the matter of the world because Morgoth's right. ring is the stuff of the world. And their bodies, for better or for worse, are made of the stuff of the world. And their bodies are not up to it. Right. So their spirits are too strong and they, and they become overpowering to their bodies and they absorb the bodies into memory, basically. And they right. fade. And there is a degree to which the spirits become marred in the sense that they, they become obsessed with this mission of preservation and memory and whether that's yeah. because the the Hroa and Fea are out of balance or there's some fundamental marring of their their Fea as well I don't know but that's what happens okay it's interesting though that it says in this fragments of elvish reincarnation that that the that the elvish Fea their souls have such a strong memory of their bodies that they can remake them yeah, in the early days, they can. Uh, okay. When we talk about fading, we're talking about like third age. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Much, much later, yeah. Um, and that is, the, is that a physical fading of like the body itself fades away? Yeah, it's like the body becomes transformed by the spirit, like it's... Right, okay. Like purified by the spirit or like ossified by the spirit to the degree that it fades away. It becomes spirit yeah. itself. And they literally fade away and... and become invisible and become spirit. I think it's a very sad ending that they become so entrenched in memory that they can no longer actually exist in the world that they're there to preserve and say and remember, but they can't leave it. Is that sort of what happens to Arwen? Um, or is it different with her? Because no, it's different with her she because she made a choice. She makes the choice to give yeah. up her immortality right man so and that's the part of the the fear that the elves have is that they have this fear looking forward because of the marring that they will they understand that they will fade and they will experience a state where they are trapped in this world until its destruction and eventually will have no way to escape or affected. That's if they stay in Middle Earth. But what if they go back? No, even in Amon, they will have, like, in Amon, they will eventually be stuck in Amon with nothing to do, no way to affect Middle Earth. Oh, no. Oh, right. Yeah, it said that in here. And yeah, like, they can't do anything. So they just have to basically sit and watch and be sad the whole time. Yeah. That sucks. I don't like that. Well, that's, that's the sad. That And that's why they cling to Estel, to hope, that they have to hope for a better some sort of salvation in Arda Healed. 
Right. And that is a great, maybe a good segue, because that is what, if I remember correctly, geez, I'm remembering back to 2019, but your boy Finrod in the Athrobath is the one that kind of precise that first, right? Yeah. He gets very excited about the idea of men because okay. men leave the circles of the world. When they die, their bodies, their Fea leave their bodies and their Fea go there, which neither men nor elf know. Mm-hmm. And the elves just assume that this is a gift, that they're not trapped in the world, that they go back mm-hmm. to Eru. But men don't see it that way. Men have a myth, according to Andreth, that they were not always thus, that they were immortal once, and that their current state is a consequence of their marring. Now, whether that's true or not is, I think, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah, it's where'd nev- she get that from? I feel like that's a big leap. <laughs> um, so that comes down through the house of Haleth, one mm. of the houses of men, and specifically through the, the line of the wise, the wise men and women of that house. Okay. And they have an... They have an ancient memory out of the darkness from the east that there was a story that they preserve that a voice came out of the darkness and demanded to be worshipped and that they worshipped the voice and when they did they lost their immortality but like that's that's if that's i mean if that's true which i'm sure you know if it's a story passed down it probably is based in some truth that was melkor and Mm. So he he did it, but like he all. So man, there's a question, that, and that's part of the debate in the uh, the Athrobeth is can Melkor affect an entire all of men's fate? Can he affect that? And Finrod mm-hmm. can't wrap his head around that. Right. And his his guess is that Eru must have changed the fate of men as like a, a punishment for forsaking him. And he, he really struggles with this. But what he does eventually focus on is the idea that if men at one time were meant to be immortal, and if at one time were meant to carry their, their bodies whole mm-hmm. elsewhere, mm-hmm. he goes through a bunch of these different versions. But what he eventually focuses on is the idea that men must have a reparative function in Middle-earth. And this becomes the, the crux of the idea of Arda healed. Okay. This belief that elves were meant to preserve Arda unmarred, such as remains in Arda marred, and men are meant to, because if you recall, men are the, the second theme. Right. Men are, uh, uh, the second theme being in the music in the Aina Lindale, after Morgoth has fucked with the music extensively, mm-hmm. Eru introduces one last theme of which there is oh, no consultation. Right. He introduces this last theme that is basically a shut the fuck up <laughs> and then ends the music. And okay. the idea is that men are that last theme and that this is his, this theme becomes mm-hmm. men and that they will have a reparative function that will, at the end of, at the end of time, heal Arda and bring in a second music. Wow. And Finrod gets very excited about that. And we don't have to talk extensively about that. You can go back and listen to our Athrobeth episodes to really kind of get into the nitty gritty of like why he gets excited about that and what's going on there. Cause I don't want to focus too much on that. Right, right, right. Sure. What I want to focus more on is what Arda healed means. Okay. So there's a, there's a textually the, Mentions of Arda Healed are, are all over the place. This isn't just something that comes up in the Athrobeth. It's in the Silmarillion. There's even a couple of mentions in like the Lord of the Rings, tangentially. Whoa, cool. And most interestingly, this lets us talk a little bit about the Dagor Dagorath. What's that? That Dagor is the, the second, pro- the right, second prophecy of Mandos. So first, Ooh. let's talk about that because that's super interesting. Yeah. Dagor Dagorath is a word that means, or is a phrase in Sindarin that means the battle of all battles. Dagor means battle. So Dagor Dagorath means battle of all battles. And metal. it's it's super metal. Hmm. 
<laughs> so the battle, the Dagger of Dagorath, it's the second prophecy of Mandos, and it is generally depicted as a battle in which all of, basically Morgoth breaks the Gate of Night and returns to Middle-earth, and there is an epic battle between all of the Valar and all, and then Morgoth. The Silmarils are, are returned and broken open. Here, I'm, I'm, I have, yeah, I have a ahead, quote here. So this is from War of the Jewels. This is the second prophecy of Mandos. Thus spake Mandos in prophecy when the gods sat in judgment in Valinor, and the rumor of his words was whispered amongst, among all the elves of the West. When the world is old and the powers grow weary, then Morgoth, seeing that the guard sleepeth, shall come back through the door of night out of the timeless void and destroy the sun and moon. But Erendil shall descend upon him as a white and searing flame and drive him from the airs. Then shall the last battle be gathered on the fields of Valinor. In that day, Tulkis shall strive with Morgoth, and on his right hand shall be Aonwe, and on his left Turin Turambar, son of Hurin, returning from the doom of men at the ending of the world. And the black sword of Turin shall deal unto Morgoth his death and final end. And so shall the t- children of Hurin and all men be avenged. Thereafter shall earth be broken and remade, and the Silmarils shall be recovered out of air, earth, and sea. For Erendil shall descend and surrender that flame which he hath had in keeping. Then Feanor shall take the three jewels, and he will, he will break them, and with their fire Yavanna will rekindle the two trees, and a great light shall come forth. And the mountains of Valinor shall be leveled, so that the light shall go out all over the world." In that light, the gods will grow young again, and the elves awake, and all dead arise, and the purpose of Iluvatar be fulfilled concerning them. But of men in that day, the prophecy of Mandoth does not speak, and no man it names, save Turin only, and to him a place is given amongst the sons of Valinor. So, sort of a Ragnarok, then, in a way, or but like it's to absolutely heal it. a Ragnarok. Okay, it's absolutely Whoa. a Ragnarok. Damn, that I sort of forgot about. I think I might. You, I'm sure you told me about this. Yeah, I it's forgot about up. it. But, but like, there's holy crap, Turambar is coming back. What the fuck? But there's a lot of controversy around the dagger Daggerath. Uh, the first of which is that Christopher Tolkien very explicitly did not include it. He was of the opinion that his father didn't want it. He went out of his way to exclude it from the Silmarillion, okay. and he in the histories he makes multiple mentions of the of the fact that it should be excluded. He even goes so far in the 30th anniversary of the Silmarillion, he quotes a letter in which Tolkien, his father, references the the Daggerath, but excludes the portion with the Daggerath in it. Huh, interesting. What? Why did he not like it so much? Okay, yeah, I um, guess I we'll think never know. We, yeah, I don't think we'll ever know why he had a specific beef with that yeah, it it was it was a thing he really didn't believe was something that should be included. But I think mm-hmm. the evidence is pretty strong that Tolkien would have included it. There's a quote. There's a letter. The uh, letter to Milton Waldman, which is pretty well known, the one where he gives like the summary of the of the mythology, mm-hmm. where he includes it as a part of wow. like that that overall summary of the mythology. Because it I, sort of is the only end we ever get, right? Because yeah, and Tol- I think that's it. This is the only time where you see an end. And I think it makes perfect sense that someone who is as deeply read in North and Nordic mythologies, which have such a fixation on apocalyptic ends, right, would write that kind of an ending, that kind of a a prophesied ending for his world, right? Especially who, one who's also Catholic. Yeah, given. Sure the Catholic obsession with that kind of apocalyptic resurrection ending. So it, it makes absolute sense to me that, that he would, he would give his world that kind of a prophecy. Yeah. Hmm. So I personally believe that while Christopher excluded it from many places and you know how we feel about Canon, we don't ever call anything Canon. I think there's strong evidence to suggest that Tolkien at least would have included the Dagor in the Dagor Dagorath in a any version of the Silmarillion he personally published. I think that's a strong for you. argument. Yeah. 
in the I, I yeah that makes perfect sense in the war of the jewels where where this is found is there indications or footnotes that there's multiple versions of this having been written there's a couple of different like versions of it and it's scattered around in different places um mm-hmm. there's quotes about it in the unfinished tales there are mm-hmm. references to it the quinta silmarillion makes passing reference to it okay um the Akalabeth makes passing reference to it. So it's there. It's part of it. Yeah, it's in the book. Like I said, it's in the book of Lost Tales. It's all over the evolution of the Silmarillion. So it's there. Tolkien's sort of last word on it was that it was a mannish legend. Okay. That it was because at the end he sort of starts evolving in the actually in the in the notes about the Athrobeth. He notes mm-hmm. uh, that because the Silmarillion ultimately becomes a, a collection of, of mannish essays and notes on elven on elven sources yeah he concludes that the the second prophecy of mandos is in fact a uh, a, a mannish edition which interesting. i think is an interesting choice yeah because um, i think it loses some of its credibility that way right yeah i don't know it, it's in world credibility mm-hmm. if you, you know if you ask me because, yeah. because like, unlike an elf, you know, being a scribe for the Silmarillion or whatever, you know, they've been around, so they're pretty close to the source of stuff or new people who knew the source or whatever. You know what I mean? Like the, the, yeah. um, the limit. Yeah. Like the, what am I trying to say? Yeah. The separation is less, but with Manish stuff, I'm like, oh, those guys don't know anything. I don't know. What do they know? <laughs> they're babies. They don't know anything. Yeah. I'm not so- sure. It's very complicated. Um, mm. Whether or not it's an elvish legend or a mannish legend, I personally think that what's clear here is that the idea of a of a second music, of a second chance for Arda after the end is clearly something Tolkien has considered. And the Dagor was one way in which he was thinking about that coming about, or one way in which Arda ends before the second music. Wow. Yeah. I think that's really interesting, personally. Yeah, yeah. So what else do we have? We've already talked about the Dagger Daggerath. Um, We've talked a lot about uh, Arda Remade, which is how Finrod refers to it. He has this this conception of Arda being repaired or remade Mm -hmm. thanks to the reparative function of men, capital M, not like man, but like men, the tribes of men. yeah. As a people. And then, like I said, we have lots of mentions in the Silmarillion of what happens after, which is often ref- being a reference to the Dagger Daggerath or something like that, where you have sort of references to things like, um, I have a couple of random quotes here, like, not until the end, when Feanor shall return, shall it be known what the Silmarils are made of. Or there's a quote about the elves, or not the elves, about the dw- about the dwarves. That you know they will return. You know the fathers of of the of old will return at the end for the last battle. Stuff like that. Wow. This quote here in of Ale of Ivana, and that he declared of, of to their fathers of old that Iluvatar will hallow them, the dwarves, and give them a place among the children in the end. Then their part shall be to serve Aule and to aid him in the making of Arda after the last battle. The remaking, so yeah. nice. I, oh, that's nice. So there's lots of. It's clearly something that he's thinking about. He's ruminated upon. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that's very helpful, and I think that that yeah, that Estel of the Elves is being um, echoed there by Tolkien himself. You know, it's nice. Yeah. I I don't know if man up till you know when the Third Age have proven themselves capable of fixing right. anything for yeah. fuck's sake and i wonder if that's why all the elves are like always like pinching this the, their nose between their eyes going oh yeah. my god Just these these idiots. fucking guys yeah yeah so what so why do we care there's some really interesting stuff about this one thing i want to sort of call out that i it's not directly related to any of this but just a really bananas quote from that fragments of elvis Res- resurrection that was really sort of what kicked me off on this subject is mm-hmm. There's a bananas quote in here. Uh, there's a <laughs> section of this paper, of these these essays, called The Numenorean Catastrophe and the End of Physical Arda that is asking the question, is Amon 
removed or destroyed at the catastrophe, referring to the destruction of Numenor. And the answer is... Interesting part. It was physical. Therefore, it could not be removed. It has Mm -hmm. to remain a as a part of Arda or a new satellite, meaning Amon either had to be divested of its metaphysical weight or it had to be yanked out of the ocean and turned into like a new moon, which I think would have been fucking metal and would have been a much cooler way to go, Ronald. But that said, uh, he doesn't go that way. The quote actually says that he thinks it should remain as like a physical landmass like the Americas and that it should be unhallowed, basically. And the result is that it becomes just a normal hunk of land and that Amon, the spiritual place, is moved off into another direction. Because he says in that same part, it's not the land that's hallowed. It's the beings there who hallow it, right? Yeah. Exactly. So once they're not there anymore, the land is not hallowed anymore. It's not like there's nothing about the land itself, right? Yeah. yeah. And the part that's, that's interesting, which is which is of on its own fucking bananas. <laughs> but then it, what gets really crazy is he says the catastrophe represents a definite intervention of Eru and therefore in a sense a change of the primal plan. It is a foretaste of the end of Arda. In a sense, I'm skipping over a little bit. In a sense, Eru moved forward the end of Arda as far as it concerned the elves. They had fulfilled their function, and we approached the dominion of men. That's bonkers. Yeah. He's essentially saying that with Numenor's destruction, effectively, the time of elves was over. Their function was complete. Right. And And everything else is the twilight. Everything else is the twilight. The, The end of Arda had come forward and the elves specific part of it was done. Everything after that for the elves was just cleanup duty. Oh man. Which is, that makes me sad. Fucking bananas. Yeah. I don't like, I don't like that so much to be honest because there were still elves that like had a lot of their life still to live, you know? Yeah. And then last it says they must await the issue of the war and only then and of their re- redemption foreglimpsed by Finrod, for their true returning, corporeal or an arrow's equivalent, in Arda remade. Right. Yeah. So it is like they will be coming back, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, it's clear that, like, that's part of the return that they imagined. But, like, hmm. that is uh, assigning a level of spiritual importance to the destruction of Numenor that is, which already had a fairly significant importance but like a next level of importance that I think is really, really interesting. But like man, men caused that, right? We know our Farazon and his idiot brigades are the ones yeah. that physically caused that, right? Although, you know, we do know that Numenor was in decline for quite a long time before that, also caused by men. But what you're saying is like, yeah, so like men basically ushered, well, I guess that's what you've been saying the whole time is that they ushered in the end of the elves. Well, no wonder the elves don't like us very much. I don't know. I think what it's really saying is that Numenor was the the end of the first age, really, the age of elves. It it was it ended that time of that mythic age, and I know it was like actually the end of the second age, but it was like like the end of that mythic age, mm. and everything after that was a lot was more mundane. Mm. Yeah, it was the men's fault, and the elves began to fade after that. Really, you know. Aggressively, but I think it really had to do with. I think it's somewhat. I, I don't want to say reductive to say that like men caused the end of the age of elves. I think that's. I think that the elves were by necessity ending, and this was simply like the aggregation of the marring meant that they simply could not last out the world, and this was the the straw that broke the camel's back, and the, it their time ended earlier than it should have and it came forward. And it absolutely was because of things men did. I don't think that that's strictly speaking men's fault. 
If you if you see the hair I'm splitting that's there. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's fair. And I think um, right after that first quote that you read, that I really like that next part where it says, hence, in, hence the vast importance of the marriages of Baron and Tuor, providing continuity of the elvish element. So like, you know, through those relationships, which were so rare, yeah. you know, they're the way the, there's some part of the elves that are preserved in those lines, right. Of men, yeah. which is really cool. I don't know. It's cool. Yeah. And I don't know, make me wistful and sad. Oh man. I want to go like read this under a, like a beech tree and just be sad. And I don't know, whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's got this whole thing is a vibe. I will say. Yeah. It it's very much quite is a vibe. Yeah. And I have to say, this is when we did these episodes first in 2019. There was no way in hell I was going to read this. And now I was like, this is so interesting. I was like up in bed, like reading it at night. Like, yeah. like what have you done to me? Why? <laughs> They're so interesting and I'm mad at you about it. <laughs> yep. Yep. So then, all right. So then, you know, what's, what are the big, what are the takeaways then from this? I think the two things to look at that I think make this interesting and relevant to the reading of Tolkien is looking at it in the context of his influences and the chronology of Middle-earth. So the influences, I think, are obvious. And we talked about that a little bit in the sense of this is a Catholic man who lived his whole life obsessed with Norse and Nordic tales. And you get that very much from the idea of there being an apocalyptic ending but also a redemptive, you know, reboot, so to speak, mm-hmm. at the end. Sure. <laughs> um, and I think it's also interesting that the put to put the these works in the the chronology of the work on Middle Earth. Most of the work that he does on this stuff takes place in the same time period that he's working on the Athrobeth, mm-hmm. um, and that's in that time period at the end of his life where he goes back and he starts really focusing on the, for lack of a better word, metaphysical and theological stuff where he's asking these questions about how do I make the cosmogony slightly less mythological? Mm-hmm. How do I, he's, he's examining the, the, the theology of his world a little bit. And even though it has, it has his personal sort of beliefs in ba- baked into it, he's mm-hmm. thinking about the consequences of those and he's thinking it all the way out. And that's where a lot of the stuff like the second music and the Athrobath are, and like the resurrection of the elves, like are becoming much more developed topics. And whether or not the Dagor belongs in this work, I think the fact that there's any debate about it is interesting because it shows that there is some question as to whether or not that was a thing that should be included because it's something he's waffling over. It's something that, given the work he's doing, he's not clear on whether that fits with this more philosophically sophisticated, maybe, theological system that he's, he's trying to work out on, in these pieces. Like, does it really make sense to have Turin come back and to have all these, this much more sort of mythological apocalypse happening? I mean, those are such difficult questions. Those are questions that theologians and great people of the history have been working with for their whole life, right? So I yeah. can't blame him for not having all the answers. Um, no, and I think and, it's a really interesting. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic, and I like that he spent so much time thinking about it because that's. I mean, obviously, I have a that's my personal area of interest with Tolkien, but I think it's interesting that that's where he took his work after he had finished Lord of the Rings, and had spent a lot of time on the Silmarillion, and that was where he ultimately decided he, you know, that was where he got hung up. There is so much verisimilitude in Middle-earth because he sunk decades into it, and that was the area that he, he felt the friction was in the theology, the philosophy, the cosmology, or the cosmogony of it, mm-hmm. that he wanted those things to feel real. Yeah, that was that's fascinating, and I think knowing this makes everything else sort of richer. Even if this all came sort of after he wrote the Lord of the Rings or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I know like, we know we, from 
you know, from John Garth's book and stuff, he was already noodling around with these ideas even as a youngster. So, but yeah, I just think, I don't know. It makes me go, wow, I guess these characters were thinking about these things and like that's, and it informs kind of decisions that they make and ways that they, you know, treat the world and treat others. I don't know. It makes me feel a bit sad that they were so worried that elves in it, for example, were so worried about these things. And I don't know. I think a lot of, I personally feel like it's not as though Tolkien got to the end, got finished Lord of the Rings and then was like, oh, fuck. I didn't even think of that until now. I think it was more like (laughs) these were ideas that he had. My sense in looking at this stuff is is that it's not like these things came out of nowhere and surprised him, but it's that he was very much triaging where he would say, okay, first I have to write this. And then as he's writing Lord of the Rings, more and more of these ideas are bubbling up and he's sorting them out. But the Silmarillion has been there for years and he's been, working out the complex ideas in the Silmarillion. But you can see all the way back in the Book of Lost Tales, a lot of the fundamental issues that he ends up working on all the way out into Morgoth's Ring, War of the Jewels, are already there, and he's already thought of them. He just Mm -hmm. hasn't developed them into the full sort of philosophical problems that he eventually will will take them out to. I think it's just a case of him spending all that time on them, but I think they're already there. They're already in his mind, and that's why you see Estel being such a fundamental concept in so many characters. Yeah. That's why you see the eucatastrophe being something that is like a fundamental theme in so many of his works. That's why you see memory and fading being such a, a consistent theme in the Third Age Elves. I think these are things that he already knows. He just hasn't like sat down, like given himself the you know has he hasn't made a priority to sit down and like put on paper and work out but i think they were yeah. already things he he knew in his head a little bit about these characters and these 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 peoples what a fascinating person he was right that's so great thank you so much for going through all of this and yeah. um I think uh, that that fleet of episodes six, seven, and eight, I think maybe are their numbers where you talk about this the first time are, are besides from like our not very great tech and our insane <laughs> amount of mouth noises, like those are really excellent episodes that you did, Jude. And this one yeah. is a perfect companion to those. So I would say, you know, listeners, if you're interested and you haven't gone back, definitely check those out. Um, and sorry about the mouth noises. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your work on this, Jude. They, no, Jude did pleasure. this entire outline, and as he said multiple times, this is this is sort of his bullshit. This yeah. is what he likes the most, right? So yeah. thank you for presenting it in such a fascinating way. This oh, was I enjoyed it. The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility and it makes us feel good. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) woohoo! You can find us on the web at podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram and also maybe Mastodon at atherbeth underscore cast. Oh, and probably Tumblr too. Whoa, everywhere. Jude can be found at Aramidic Jude and I can be found at the North Four. Producer James, who edits all of our episodes and makes us sound super great, uh, can be found at Jay Pearson. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs> so mad at you. <laughs> Liz, the listeners knew the how many minutes of just burps I have to listen to every time. What do you eat before that? Oh my god, I love you so much. It's okay.